All right, so last two weeks ago, was it? Seems longer. Seems longer, actually. Two weeks ago, we were going through Isaiah. And uh, we were bringing out this important idea of the way that God uses the covenants that he's made in the Pentateuch, um, reminding ourselves what they are, they're the Noahic, they're the Abrahamic, they're the um, priestly and the, the Davidic, and then there's also the Mosaic, remember. The Mosaic covenant is a temporary covenant, and that's very important to understand. And the prophets, what they do is that they they preach conformity or bringing people back to the moral, particularly the moral parts of the Mosaic Covenant. Okay? They're not as concerned with the ceremonial parts. They only talk about the ceremonial parts because of the fact that the ceremony is empty because the morality isn't there. Okay? The people are corrupt. So... Uh, they don't really focus too much on that side of things. They're more interested in social justice. They're interested in compassion. They're interested in leniency and fairness, those kinds of things, calling people back to those God-given values. But over the top of this, there is always failure, the failure of people to live up to this, the failure of Israel to do God's will. Um, and this failure is just a repeated failure. It's, it's never really, there's never really any bright light to it. There's a couple of windows that are opened at certain times. One thinks about Samuel, one thinks about David, one thinks a little bit about the first part of Solomon's reign. Uh, you can think about um, certain of the Judea, <laughs> Excuse me. The kings of Judah. I'll say it that way. Um, Asa, um, Hezekiah, Josiah, Uzziah, somewhat. Some of those kings were pretty good kings. But still, there was a general declension. And even the great reforms of uh, Josiah, for example, the reinstitution of the Day of Atonement and the, the finding and the reading of the Book of the Law and all of that, it didn't reverse the general downward trend of things. And that is not surprising for any of us who know ourselves. <laughs> um, you know, our tendency left to ourselves or left to a standard that we can't keep is... Um, always to fall short of the standard, always to come short, way short of the standard. To be drawn away from that standard is so easy and it's so natural to us. It's actually unnatural to draw ourselves toward the good. That's what our sin inclination is. Okay, no questions. Um, the... Uh, Sin inclination is is a principle that is part of us. It's not something that uh, we're infected with and there's a cure that we can get out of. We need to be utterly changed. 
we need to be, in the New Testament terminology, born again. <laughs> uh, our spirits need to, well, ourselves need to die, let's put it that way, at least judicially speaking, and our lives need to be lived in the fullness of Christ through his Holy Spirit. So, in the Old Testament, there is, um, there is this important trajectory that the prophets as prophets are pointing to. And this is the great day, the great moment where God finally brings in his kingdom. People don't bring it in. Religion doesn't bring it in. Power doesn't bring it in. The Holy Spirit brings it in. Uh, and the Son, who is known as the Messiah, who is known as the Branch, who is known the King of, as the King of Righteousness and various other names, the, the Seed, uh, he's the one who brings in this eventual kingdom. And we saw last time that Isaiah uh, focuses our attention on the way that the different strands of promise that are within the separate covenants, abstracting the mosaic, that these begin to be seen to be woven together to make up a picture. Okay? And we've got some, we begin to get an idea of the picture that is painted of this future time from the prophets. The question <coughs> is always going to be, what do we make of the picture? Um, but before we can ask that question, and we'll ask that question really, um, and finally, we'll ask the question at the end of this course. Um, before that, we've got to make sure that we see the picture as well as we can see it. And so that means the accumulation of more data, the reading of more of the prophets. Uh, for more information, for more light, uh, and hopefully for the raising of more expectation. Because remember, any promise that is made, particularly a covenanted promise, raises an expectation. If it raises an expectation, then there is, I hope you can see, an ethical obligation upon the one who raises the expectation. Do you see that? If you raise an expectation in a child by the language that you use, the obligation, if that expectation is dashed, is yours. The, the, um, the condemnation, the infamy, whatever it is that comes back on you, it's yours because you're the one who promised it. You're the one who chose the words. You're the one who entered into the covenant. You're the one who is at fault. And don't think that God has a double standard. He doesn't. God holds himself, if I may use this uh, terminology, he holds himself to the same standard as he holds us. 
Now, let me explain that so that you understand what I'm saying there. God holds himself to the same standard as he holds us because if he didn't, he wouldn't be God. Um, God will look at this two ways. First of all, this is a bit of systematic theology we're doing at the beginning here. Um, looking at, at it at an, in a negative way, he's got to hold us to the same standard as himself because he is the standard. And so he can't accept a standard below himself because he is the standard. The standard is not something like in... Uh, uh, Plato, for example, that is outside of God. You know, the Euthyphro problem, if you're aware of that. Maybe not. Um, is the good, is God good because he does the good or, be, or is he good because, um, you know, he is, he is himself the standard of that goodness. And, uh, God, there would be no good there would be no perfection if God were not in existence. But there wouldn't be anything else either. So God himself is that standard. Okay? Negatively, he's got to hold us to the standard that he is. To, to hold us to a lower standard is to what? Deny himself. Do you see? Because he's the standard. Uh, positively... Uh, God has to hold himself to the same standard as he holds us because if he doesn't, he becomes, he goes below his own standard, do you see? So he now becomes less of a standard than he was <laughs> before. And therefore he ungods himself, do you see? So God must hold himself to the same standard that he holds everybody else to. Now this is particularly important and cogent when it comes to his word. That's all we've got. It's all we've got. Now you saying, well, we've got the Holy Spirit. How do you know you've got the Holy Spirit? Finally, because this book tells you you do. Not because you feel, you know, carried away. Um... Not because you're singing praise songs and you come out feeling elated, uh, but only because um, because God Himself stands behind His word. So God raises the expectation. If the expectation is dashed, it comes back on God. You think that's controversial? Does that make you nervous? Saying things like that? It shouldn't. God, God wants you to have that kind of faith in Him. I honestly believe this. He wants you to have this kind of unfettered, uncluttered faith that sees these things clearly and that knows that that's the case. Satan would like to bring a nice little sunshade over your um, over your faith, or put some nice little jaundiced glasses on 
to the end of your nose. So you don't see things in their brightest light and you don't see all of the colors that you ought to see, that God wants you to see. Faith is not this ethereal groping after what God has said in his word. Faith is is seeing, understanding the word and and taking it as a platform and a standard and a promise from which you can move forward, in which you can think your thoughts and live your life. For that to happen, you need clarity. Okay? So there's my introduction, my preamble today. But that's because we skipped a week. Now what we're going to do is that we're going to enter into the book of Jeremiah. You know, Jeremiah is an interesting chap. Um, Jeremiah, he's, he's, he's one of these guys that nothing really good happens to him. You notice that? So, you know, when nothing good is happening to me, I take some, at least some courage from the fact that, well, Jeremiah had worse than I did, you know? At least I wasn't lowered into an oubliette and forgotten about for a while, or, um, you know, mistreated and abused and mocked and humiliated and um, dragged off to a country I didn't want to go to and all of that. And remember that all of those things involved, in some sense, a confusion in the mind of Jeremiah as to what on earth God was doing. When in the book of Lamentations, you know, he uh, he sees what's happening to Jerusalem, what's happening to the people, he cries out. When he sees, um, I think it's in chapter 4, I'm not sure, um, some of the horrid things that he has to see, when he has to witness, he cries out to God saying, you greatly deceived this people. It's not a smart thing to say to God. Or is it? Or is it? God knows that he doesn't really mean that, but God also knows that's what it, that's what he feels in his bones. Do you see? Uh, you look at Jesus, and uh, remember when he was calling Nathaniel? And he said, uh, you know, uh, an Israelite in whom there is no, you know, no guile, yeah? And basically, the response from Nathaniel is, well, how do you know? You don't even know me. I mean, straightforward questioning. Jesus doesn't say, just a minute, you. You don't realize who I am. I'm the Son of God. You better get down on your knees right now before I, you know, zap you. He doesn't do that. He actually knows that that's what Nathaniel's like and that's why he calls him a person whom there is no guile. Nathaniel's going to tell him the way it is, what the way it is, yes? That's, that's a good trait when you're talking to God. Okay? When you're talking to other people, you've got to be more understanding and guarded and humble so as to not to upset them or give them the wrong impression or to come across too harsh or whatever. You've still got to speak the truth, but you speak it 
in love and you speak it in understanding and tenderness and so on. Yes, When you're speaking to God, you speak, of course, in love, but also when you're speaking to God, you speak with all of your fiber. You should speak with your being. And, and as somebody who um, is often caught up in trouble and difficulty and pain and whatever you have to go through in this world, you know, it's it's not always going to be the most decorous thing that comes out of your mouth, is it? You know, your feelings are not always going to be completely ordered and packaged into nice packages and presentable to God, are they? But God wants to hear from you, you see. The big lie is that unless you get these things packaged and all nice and with a bow on the top, you can't present them to God. Okay? And so you don't pray. And that's exactly what the devil wants. That's not true. The blood, by the blood of Christ, you come boldly into the throne of grace. Okay. Again, I haven't even started on Jeremiah 30 yet, and I'm just, you know, I'm getting preachy. So I told you to, if you could read Jeremiah 30 to 35, and so let's have the moment of shame. Uh, who actually has done this? Now, there isn't a moment of shame for some people here because they weren't actually here last time. But one, two, three, four, shame on you, five, six, seven. All right. No, Michael, Michael. Most of it. Well, keep your keep your hand down then. I mean, you can't put, can't put your hand out for all of it if you only did some of it. Yeah. Um, the reason that I asked you to to uh, read these chapters is because there are them- thematic connections between them. Did any of you see any thematic connections? You did. Do you want to do you want to share some with us? <laughs> Mariana is going to share. All right. And he also needs to have a decent board. I was enjoying that. All right, there we go. I don't think that that works, actually. Let's see. Is that? Yeah, it's not a hook. I think that has to go down. There's some holes there. Oh, does that? Maybe it goes through there. Will they go in? Maybe it does. All right. Are we good? Okay. God gets angry and what? Um, And chastises. Chastises, okay. Chastises. How do you spell chastises? S E S? I've got Z. Z can normally go in there in dictionaries where people like me can't spell. Okay, so yeah, chastises people. Anything else? Uh, 
Yeah. Um, he forgives and gives mercy, joy, and abundance. Gives. He also um, will judge his people's enemies. Okay, that's good. Good. Very good. Enemies. All right, but that's good. Okay. I have one to add. All right, one to add. Okay. Okay. He does communicate. That's what Jeremiah's job is. And that's what chapter 35, particularly as an illustration, is doing. It's kind of a, a little parable. So, uh, particularly I want to, um, this is all good by the way. Um, you see these themes, anger and forgiveness, okay? Chastisement and then mercy. But these three are very good. Um, judges his people's enemies. I like the way you put that. Not judges just his enemies, judges his people's enemies because that comes up again and again and again in the prophets. They will serve you. They will come to you, they will restore to you, okay, meaning Israel. Uh, he'll restore Israel. Land and people comes up all the time. You're going to see that very closely here and uh, the fact that God does communicate and uh, the question is, what kind of a communication is this? Um at the most basic level, is it an understandable? Is it a comprehensible communication? Who's it for? Is it for the scholars? So it has to go. It has to go to the scholars and filter down through the scholars who have uh, um, translated it or have decodified it, and they can present it then in an understandable form to the people. Is that the way God communicates? He's certainly not communicating that way to Jeremiah, but according to many New Testament scholars today, that's the way God did communicate. So, you know, there is what's going on there. So, having said that then, and we did have a look at chapter 30 a little bit last time, but um, let's, let's plow through this. We're not going to go verse by verse through the whole of the chapters, but we are going to do quite a lot of verse-by-verse verse material. So, uh, pen to paper, um, only ask a question if it's you're really not getting it, okay? Or you don't understand what I said. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, thus speaks the Lord God of Israel saying, write in a book for yourself all the words that I have spoken to you. Uh, God has, is okay with, with writing in books. 
Uh, writing in books is a great way of conveying information. Um, God could have chosen not to give us the Bible. He could have chosen to put it in our heads. But he didn't. Well, according to one Christian philosopher, he did. But, um, but he didn't. Uh, there are reasons that are known to God for him not doing that. One of the reasons, I think, is that the whole, this whole mysterious doctrine of election, whichever view you take on that, it's still mysterious. Um, that's difficult to, to say, but uh, books are the, you know, books are the things that where the ideas for, for the world come from. They're very, very powerful. Write it in the book. For behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will bring back captivity, my people, from back to captivity, my people Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers and they shall possess it. Um, as we, as we said last time, Jeremiah is a 6th century prophet. This is just before the Babylonian captivity in 586. Okay, the, it, He's not living in godly times. He's not living at times of revival or hope. The Babylonians are at the gates. Nebuchadnezzar is coming. And... It's really important that we, we understand the context here, the historical context of these oracles from Jeremiah. Because if we don't, we're liable to say something daft like the land promise was fulfilled in the time of David or the time of Joshua, which is what some people say. And yet what's Jeremiah just said? Jeremiah's living 400 years after David. 400 novel years, 440 years. And he's saying that the captivity will, uh, will happen and Israel's gonna possess the land. They'll possess it. They'll possess it. It'll be theirs. That's what that means. That I gave to their fathers and they shall possess it. And the fathers here is particularly the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Now these are the words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. Israel and Judah. By Jeremiah's time, the ten northern tribes had gone off into captivity into Assyria, 722 BC. But some of them had come down to, of course, as you would, had come down to Judah. And so there were representatives of the, all of the twelve tribes in the south. For thus says the Lord, We have heard a voice of trembling, of fear and not of peace. Ask now and see whether a man is ever in labor with child. So will I do, so do I see every man with his hands on his loins like a woman in labor. And all faces turn pale. They're in fear. They are transfixed to the spot. They are in terror. They are ducking down. They are scared, these people. Alas, for that day is great. That day. There's going to be a day 
And it's going to be a day of great trial. So there is none like it. Notice those words. There is none like it. Jesus um, said something like that, Mark 13, 19 and 20. You remember talking about that, that day of there will be great tribulation such as not has been nor ever shall be. Right? Uh, you see this kind of refrain in Jeremiah. You see it in Daniel chapter 12 as well. And it is the time of Jacob's trouble. That's the 12 tribes. But he will be saved out of it. There's going to be trouble, therefore, a real time of intense persecution and trial, but there will be salvation from it. The time, when will this happen? We're not told. We're not told. For it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from your neck, will burst your bonds, like they're in bondage and slavery. Foreigners shall no more enslave them, but they shall serve the Lord their God. Now in order to serve God properly, you have to have the right heart, a heart of service. And David, their king, whom I will raise up for them. And I said last time, does anyone have a problem with the resurrection of David? Well, you oughtn't to if you believe the Bible. I mean, do you believe that David is going to be resurrected? Do you believe the Old Testament saints will be resurrected? Yes, of course you will, you do. It kind of sounds odd, though, when it comes in a context like this. You think, hold on a minute, I've not thought about David being resurrected and where's he going to go? What's he going to do? Well, maybe he's going to actually be given a kingly position in Jerusalem. It says David the king here, whom I will raise up for them. And he says, do not fear. Uh, O my servant Jacob, says the Lord, nor be dismayed, O Israel. For behold, I will save you from afar and your seed from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return. Have rest and be quiet, and no one shall make him afraid. I am the one, for I am with you, says the Lord, to save you. And yet he says uh, at the end of verse 11, stinging a tail, I will not let you go altogether unpunished. And then it all goes into, uh, you think, well that's all great, and then it goes into another um, oracle, which is that, uh, your wound, your affliction is incurable, your wound is severe, and it gets all negative again. Which is often the way that it happens. Okay, you get this bright, gleaming light of hope in the future, and then it goes into the gloom again. That's what the prophets are often like. So, what we get from this part in Jeremiah 30 is that there will be this time of trial. Can I take this off? Have you got this, this down? Where's me? I don't even have a border. Oh, yeah, I do. So you have a day of trial, okay? Jacob's trouble, it's called. And remember what he said about it. Um, it it is a, a trial like none other. Okay? The actual words uh, here are 
there is none like it. Okay? There is none like it. It is unique. But then there is a, also a day of salvation. A day, a day of restoration as well. And then there's also the raising up of David. Now, I know you, many commentators and so on, will say, yeah, that doesn't mean David. That means the Davidic line in Christ. But that's not what it says. It says, I will raise him up. Okay? I will raise him up. Now, that can mean promote, bring to attention... Okay, David was raised out of the sheepfold, for example, to become king over Israel. It could mean that, but it also could mean I'm going to actually raise him up. <laughs> okay, for you. It could be a resurrection prophecy. It's hard to know which one it is. And so, um, I'm not going to push that. But I will say this, uh, that Verse 24 says, in the latter days you will consider it. So it's the latter days that this focus is on. Now chapter 31 is a very important chapter in the New Testament. And so I want to, I want to go through it with you. Not, I'm not going to, um, comment on every verse, but when we get to chap, when we get to verse 31, it's really important that we slow down. At the same time, says the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. Israel, when I, uh, when I went to give him rest, the Lord has appeared of old to me saying, yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. Again, I will build you and you shall be rebuilt. O Virgin of Israel. Any of you have a problem with calling Israel a virgin at the time of Jeremiah? I mean, you've read the books of Kings and Chronicles, haven't you? You know what was going on, you know prostitutes and so on, right next door to the temple. Very ungodly kings. Um, Terrible godlessness. Persecution of God's prophets and so on. Very little glimmer of hope at all. What do you mean, virgin? Have we... uh, Jeremiah, have you not read Hosea? I mean, Hosea was two centuries in front of him. He should have read him, shouldn't he? He should have known that God was likening Israel to a whore. And himself to somebody who would take the prostitute back. What's going on here? How can God talk to Israel in this kind of language? 
seeing Israel like this? How can Israel ever be like this? Well, well, Jeremiah will answer that. God will uh, answer that in these chapters. But in the same way that he sees you, stainless and pure and white and holy, at least in uh, positionally in Christ, in our lives we are far from that and some of us are worse than others in that. And some of us try and pursue holiness and some of us don't. Um, but it's still true. And this is necessary. If God can't describe us in these terms of purity, we cannot be saved. We cannot be in his presence. All of this language about, I've loved you with everlasting love, and I'm going to come after you, you prostitute, doesn't quite do it, does it? O prostitute of Israel. That's really spiritually what they were. And certainly Hosea, Isaiah, and um, Ezekiel, a little bit later on, is going to be very clear on this. And yet, here it is. This is obviously God looking into the future. This is the God of hope. This is the God of promise. You shall again be adorned with your tambourines and shall go forth in the dances of those who rejoice. You shall yet plant vines on the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant and eat them as ordinary food. For there shall be a day when the watchmen will cry on Mount Ephraim, Arise and let us go to Zion to the Lord our God. But thus says the Lord, sing with gladness for Jacob and shout among the chief of the nations, proclaim, give praise and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. The remnant. There it is again. Okay, we saw this last time. This doctrine of the remnant. Paul speaks about this in the book of Romans. He says, in chapter 2, not all Israel are of Israel. Okay? He's not talking uh, out of both sides of his mouth saying, yeah, because some Gentiles are Israel. In fact, that most Gentiles are now Israel because the church is the new Israel. He's not saying that. He's a Jew and he's, he knows the doctrine of the remnant. And he knows that not everybody in Israel who is a Jew is part of the remnant, the true Israel. Do you see? Behold, I bring them from the north country and gather them from the ends of the earth, among them the blind and the lame, the woman with child, one who labors with child together. A strong throng shall return there, They shall come with weeping and with supplications I will lead them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of waters on a straight way in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father 
to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Ephraim standing for for Israel there, okay? Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, okay? So now God's speaking to the nations. And declare it in the isles afar off and say, He who scattered Israel will gather them and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of one stronger than he. Therefore they shall come and sing in the height of Zion, streaming to the goodness of the Lord for wheat and new wine and oil for the young of the flock and the herd. Their soul shall be like a well-watered garden and they shall sorrow no more at all. This is fantastic language. And look at what it encompasses. It encompasses salvation. It encompasses the land being restored, uh, a proper relationship. It, It talks about rejoicing. Maybe we should put that up there. Uh, certainly another R here. Return. And uh, it, it also refers here to the regeneration of the land. You see that? With the productivity of the land. And we've already read about that in Hosea 2, verse 22 and following, and Amos 9. Okay, we saw it in Isaiah 2. Okay? The young of the flock and the herd. You have the animals. Well, the animal kingdom will be affected. Isaiah 11, Isaiah 65. Your souls will be like a well-watered garden. What does that mean? How, well, if uh, a well-watered garden is tended by somebody who knows what they're doing, uh, you get me to water your garden. Not a good idea. You you did, and I hope that your plants are still, you know. They, they're, they're probably still recovering from the, the two visits I paid to your backyard. But um, but I tend to drown plants. Okay, I don't know what I'm doing. Um, so you know, it's dry. You need water. You know, so you're, you're from England with plenty of water. So yeah. We understand. That. So um, yeah, I tend to not be a very good. Gardener, but somebody who's a good gardener gives the right amount of water, and um, it says the soul of these people, the soul of Israel, will be like a well-watered, well-tended garden, and uh, that means that they will be satiated, fully satisfied, no yearning. Um, no hopes unfulfilled. Do you see that? No hopes that are unfulfilled. No disappointments anymore. 
uh, Then shall the virgin rejoice in the dance and the young men and the old together. The virgin here is the, is a literal virgin. For I will turn their mourning to joy, will comfort them, make them rejoice rather than sorrow. I will satiate the soul of the priests with abundance. Okay. What covenant's that? Priestly covenant, do you see? Oh, the, uh, I didn't do this. The redemption of, uh, Jacob. Well, no, I'm not going to go there because it's coming up. But what about these, uh, what about David that was mentioned in chapter 30? What covenant's that? Davidic. It's kind of surprising, but there it, there it is. And then, um, the, uh, the productivity of the land and then the animals getting in there. What, what covenant covers the earth and the land and the animals? The Noahic does, yes, the Noahic does. So he's what's happening here, and it happens throughout, you'll see it, is all these different covenants are coming together. And the picture is not distorted when they come together. The picture starts to actually come into focus when they are brought together. But there's yet, even though we've, we've talked about salvation, we've talked about redemption and so on, um, there's still one covenant that's unannounced and it's, it's so important, this covenant. It's so important. <clears throat> but we're going to meet it in just a minute. Do you need a drink of water? Okay. Yeah, it's not a problem. You just get do what you need to do. My people shall be satisfied with my goodness, says the Lord. Um, guys, I know that we can write nice little devotionals about a verse like that. And that in the midst of our trials, you know, somebody at work's driving us crazy. Um, I've got an out of control kid. Okay, I'm unemployed. I'm in a two-bedroom. No, um, you you understand? We can. We've all got things, yeah. I've got physical problems. I've got issues that I have to deal with, you know, and I have to deal with them. I can tell people about them, but I'm the one who has to deal with them. And I know you can come to me and in those little quiet hours before the world starts encroaching upon my solitude and my quietness, you can tell me that I ought to be satisfied in the goodness of God. And so I should. But it ain't that easy, is it, folks? Okay? To be satisfied in the goodness of God means to die to self constantly. It means to take, grasp the word of God and daily take hope from the word of God on things that are not yet yours and are not going to be yours tomorrow or the day after or the day after. Okay? But that, is not what this verse means. What this verse means is that there will be a day 
when Israel, his people, will be satisfied, utterly satisfied in his goodness. And they will be surrounded by goodness. And they will never again look upon or meet or feel or be intimidated by or be in any kind of uh, threat of coming into contact with anything that's bad or anything that can upset them. Okay? That's what this is talking about. It's talking about the consummation of salvation. The consummation of salvation is not this. Just as the consummation of the work of Christ is not the cross, but the second coming in glory. You see? The cross gives me salvation, the second coming gives me hope. The cross is a real and terrifyingly tragic thing. The resurrection is a magnificent victory over the cross and the devil and the world. And it's a victory achieved for you and I. And yet, it hasn't been achieved and won't be fully achieved until the second coming. Do you see? So in the same way, we gather strength as we die to ourselves, but our lives are as strangers and pilgrims in this world. And uh, those horrible words of Paul, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. <laughs> um, this is not heaven or the kingdom, and God is not on the throne right now. And guess what? You're, we're not in the kingdom. Okay, we are in, an, in one sense, which we'll look at in the New Testament, but we're not there right now, and that's not what's being talked about in Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, and you know this passage, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children because they are no more. And that's, of course, used or applied to, it's not a prophecy of, but it's applied to uh, the massacre of the innocents. Thus says the Lord, refrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. Why should I? For your work shall be rewarded, says the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope in your future, says the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own border. Now this certainly could well mean, uh, could allude to the 70 years captivity and the fact that the children of these that go into captivity will come back again. That's certainly true. I have surely heard Ephraim bemoaning himself. You have chastised me and I was chastised like an untrained bull. Restore me and I will return. For you are the Lord my God. 
Surely after my turning I repented, and after I was instructed I struck myself on the thigh. I was ashamed, yes, even humiliated, because I bore the reproach of my youth. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a pleasant child? For though I spoke against him, I earnestly remember him still. Therefore my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him. Who's saying this? Who's talking about striking himself on the thigh? (laughs) Says the Lord. This is anthropomorphic language. And yet, look how animated God gets. Look how passionate God is. Look how committed he is. That's the God that we need to cling to. That's the God that we need to envisage. You know, too often I envisage a God who's just fed up with me and doesn't like me very much because after all, I don't like me very much. Um, But... That isn't true. The fact that I don't like me very much, and I've got good reasons for that, but the fact that that's true of me isn't true of God, although I might think that it is. Sometimes I do think it is, actually. I'll give you that. I I do. I struggle in that area sometimes. But the Word of God nowhere says that God doesn't like me. The Word of God tells me that far from not liking me, He is fully and passionately devoted to me. He has elected me. I'm His Son. And He's going to bring me to His side one day. And so, uh, what we have here is this, this marvelous pictorial language of God at the time that, that Israel is, is on the verge of going into the Babylonian captivity and all the awful things that the Babylonians are going to do, God still sees Israel as his people. Set up signposts, mere la- make landmarks, set your heart toward the highway, the way in which you went. Turn back, O virgin of Israel. Turn back to these your cities. How long will you get about? I love that. Oh, you backsliding daughter, for the Lord has created a new thing in the earth. A woman shall encompass a man. You know, sometimes that's a, some people say that's a veiled um, allusion to the virgin birth. I don't think so. I, I have no idea what that means. Okay, I know what the commentators say, but I really, I just don't know what it means, really. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, they shall again use this speech in the land of Judah and its cities when I bring back their captivity. The Lord bless you, O home of justice, the mountain of holiness. Well, you know, maybe they said that when Zerubbabel came back with Ezra and Nehemiah. Maybe, and then Nehemiah. But you don't read about it. You do read about Nehemiah going to the people and plucking out the beards of the people because they're intermarrying with people again. Okay? You do read about Ezra, you know, being concerned about the holiness of the people. But you don't read that. Verse 
And there shall dwell in Judah itself and in all its cities together farmers and those going out with flocks, for I have satiated the weary soul and I have replenished every sorrowful soul. After this I awoke and looked around and my sleep was sweet to me, says Jeremiah. Got it. He's, he's, not, he's not living the dream here, okay? But he's dreaming it, okay? Yes, he's dreaming the dream, he's just not living it. And the dream will be a reality. Okay, behold the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast. It shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to throw down, to destroy and to afflict, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, says the Lord. In those days they shall say no more, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. That's one of those proverbs that they were saying to each other, you know. Um, man, a thought, a wicked thought just came to me, into my head right then, okay, which I'm not going to say of a modern proverb, okay, a modern proverb. But uh, it would be very wrong of me to say it, so I'm not going to. I'm just going to make you. Let, I'm just going to confess, confess it to you, and move on. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Every man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. And then look at this. This is where I want to get to. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Which one's that? The Mosaic. My covenant which they broke. Though I was a husband to them. You were married to them. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. This is Deuteronomy 30. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This is covenantal language uh, about this particular covenant. And so now we are, we've, we've kind of had intimations and hints of, of this new covenant. Now I can write it on the board. Okay? Here's another covenant. And what we need to do after today, so next week, what we need to do is focus on this covenant as the prophets speak about it. This covenant is going to, um, it's, it's, oh, I don't know, it's the HD that's going to bring the picture into focus. Okay? It's uh, it's the new set of eyes that's going to give the rationale for everything. It's going to bring things together. And this covenant is the thing that's going to help us transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament. But only if we pay attention to what it says. Now notice, although this term new covenant has not arisen until this point, the things that he's saying here have been spoken about. Isaiah spoke about these things, didn't he? Okay, salvation, new heart and all that stuff. 
Moses spoke about them. But here you see things are, uh, uh, revelations being added to. We're getting more information here. And notice that the information is not contradictory. The information is not um, causing us to question if we really understood what was said before. It's supplemental. It's, I'm not even sure if this is a word, clarificational. If it's not a word, I claim it. Yeah. And I like that yeah. one. Um, it's new covenant. This is, this is a very, very key doctrine. And in, in, um, my particular theology, you might call it an odd thing. Um, I don't think it's odd. I'm gonna, I'm going to put a lot of emphasis on this. Okay? And what I'm going to do is that I'm going to show you that the new covenant is such a wonderful thing, such a big thing, that it encompasses everything. And the reason it encompasses everything is because of um, the personality of the one who stands for it and behind it. But I can't tell you who that is yet and what that is, because that's not what Jeremiah is talking about. And we're in Jeremiah. So you get the idea, this new covenant, big stuff. The writer of Hebrews quotes this passage almost verbatim in Hebrews 9, I believe. The longest quotation of any Old Testament passage in the New Testament is this passage. We know, because of the contrast here, we know that the New Covenant replaces the Old Covenant, which is why it's called New. The Old Covenant is the Mosaic Covenant. It needs replacing because we can't keep it. If we could keep it, there'd be no need for putting His law in our hearts. But there is a need to put His law in our hearts because if He doesn't, if He, God, doesn't, we won't be saved. He's got to do it. That is such an important point. That's such an important point. Calvinist or Arminian, by the way, both Calvinists and Arminians agree with that point. Okay, So don't think that I'm trying to go one way or another on this. I don't need to. The fact of the matter is, God must do it. Because if he didn't, you and I would be lost. And so would Israel, and so would any other person. All right. Let's move on to chapter 32. There's more stuff in this, I know, but we have to move on. What's happening in chapter 32 is kind of a weird thing. Okay? Jeremiah is uh, put in a position like God's people are often put in, where God asks him to do something that doesn't make any sense. Um, 
Jeremiah has been spending a lot of time telling Israel to prepare for going off to Babylon. To, to Babylon, sorry. It's not. It's not that uh, you know. Turn your ways around, and I will save you. It's uh, just prepare because you know, I've had enough. Okay, and you're going to Babylon. How you go is your choice. What you're supposed to do is go out and fall into their hands. Just say, okay, game's up. God's told us to come out. We have sinned. You, we are your prisoners. We are indeed on chapter 32. Thanks for the reminder. All right. That's all right, Rick. Okay. Actually, it's not all right. I hate devices. Um, so, um, but grace covers a multitude of sins, even that sin. All right. Okay. Actually, uh, as a digression here, at our church, I'm about to, um, diplomatically, but I'm about to uh, announce to a shocked and stunned congregation that they will not be able to have any electronic devices while I'm preaching. Okay? I don't care if it's their Bibles. They've got a Bible. They can pick one up and read it. They don't need something shining in their face and everybody else's face while I'm preaching. It's off-putting. Okay. So, God gave us a book, okay? Not a cell phone. Alright. Anyway. Sorry, Rick. That wasn't aimed at you at all. I just see, it was an opportunity, it was an opportunity for me to go off on a tangent and I took it. Alright. So, um, so, What's he, what's he being asked to do? He's, he's being asked to go to Hanan, Hanamel, verse 7, the son of Shalem, your uncle. And uh, this person will come to him saying, Buy my field, which is in Anathoth, for the right of redemption is yours to buy it. Well, why on earth should he buy it? Because he's not going to, it's not as if he can go and claim it and build a house on it. I mean, he's going off to Babylon. They're all going off to Babylon, as far as he knows. What's the point in in buying a piece of real estate when you know that the Russians are coming? Or, you know, I mean, when you know that your enemies are just over the corner, around the corner. It would be like, um, I don't know, it would, be, it would be like Rahab putting down, getting out a mortgage for her house on the on the wall after knowing that the Israelites were going to destroy the wall. Do you see? That's, so what is God up to here? What's going on? Why on earth, if Israel are going to go, you know, 800 miles or so east, to the great power of the world, what's the point in buying a bunch of property? Well, because God tells you to, that's why. So, 
this person's going to come. Then Hanamel, my uncle's son, came to me in the court of the prison according to the word of the Lord, because that's where Jeremiah is, and said to me, Please buy my field that is in Anathoth, which is in the country of Benjamin, for yours is, the right of inheritance is yours, and redemption yours, buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. How on earth did he know that? He says, ironically. <clears throat> How on earth did he know? Well, because God means what he says, and God had told him that's what Hanama would say. So he didn't have to decipher the meaning of God's words because God means what he says. Do you see? So then he knows it's the word of God because it happens. Do you see? Now, by the way, the word, that's an insight into the, the, the job of the prophet. God tells the prophet, this is going to happen. So the prophet says, he goes out on a limb, says, this is going to happen because God told me. The test of the prophet is to do what? See if what the prophet said happens. Because if it doesn't happen, he's a false prophet. Do you see that here? I knew it was the word of the Lord. And so do you. <clears throat> so I bought the field from Hanamal, the son of my uncle, who was in Anathoth, and weighed out for him the money... 17 shekels of silver and I signed the deed and sealed it, took witnesses and weighed the money on the scales. So I took the purchase deed, both that which was sealed according to the law and custom, that which was open, and I gave the purchase deed to Baruch, the son of Neriah, son of Marsiah, in the presence of Hanamel, my uncle's son, and in the presence of the witnesses who signed the purchase deed before all the Jews who sat in the court of the prison. By the way, this guy Baruch, uh, he's actually come up in archaeological finds. Okay, they've found his name. <clears throat> then I charged Baruch before them, saying, uh, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds with both this purchase deed which is sealed and this deed which is open, and put them in an earthen vessel that they may last many days, so for preservation, like Dead Sea Scrolls, for thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall be possessed again in this land. That's the meaning. Jeremiah is not going to possess them. All hope will seem to be gone when Nebuchadnezzar's forces come crashing through the gates. Um, when the, the cold reality of being under the power of your, of the enemy and being led away weeping by the rivers of Babylon remember that song uh, when that comes upon them and anything but hope seems to be uh, a reality at least there is a sign here a sign of return maybe not for the people that go but for their sons and their daughters. That will happen. Okay? <clears throat> but there's more to this. And uh, if you don't mind me reading, 
quite a bit. Now when I had delivered the purchase deed to Baruch the son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord, saying, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. That's how we should pray. Okay? God, you're the creator. Okay? Not God, you're the great, God, uh, you know, um, vending machine up in the sky, but you are the creator of all things. You show loving kindness, that's that word hesed again, that, that wonderful word of committedness of God, to thousands and repay the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of their children after them, the great, the mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts, Yahweh of hosts. You are great in counsel and mighty in work, for your eyes are open to all the ways of the sons of men, to give everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. Yeah, but, yeah... But Jeremiah, who's praying this, if he didn't have the eyes of faith, might not have thought that that was happening because he's in prison. If he's getting the fruit of his, of his, uh, word, yeah, doings, if he's, if he's getting that, why is he in prison? Why is he miserable? Why um, is he going to get trawled off to Egypt by a bunch of people when he, who are not going to listen to him when he says, stay here? Where's his reward? Faith, you see, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. That's what we need. Okay, that's what we need. We've got to bring the future into the present because we can do that because it's, it's a reality that we haven't yet entered into. So, but he's, he's talking to, to God, telling God who he is. Not, not receiving the lies of Satan. Not believing his own emotions. Okay? But, that telling God the truth about himself, reminding himself of who God is. You've set signs and wonders in the land of Egypt to this day and in Israel and among many other men, and you have made yourself a name as it is this day. You have brought your people, Israel, out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders, with a strong hand and with outstretched arm. This is a thousand years nearly before this. How on earth did Jeremiah? Why should he believe in the Exodus? For the same reason you should believe in the Exodus. And with great terror, you have given them this land, given them this land, which they're going to be booted out of, of which you swore to their fathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey. And they came in and took possession of it, but they have not obeyed your voice or walked in your law. They have done nothing of all that you commanded them to do. Therefore, you have caused all this calamity to come upon them. Look, the siege mounds, they're already outside the gate. They have come to the city to take it, and the city has been given into the hand of the Chaldeans who fight against it because of the sword, the famine, the pestilence. We don't have a chance to go into that right now. What you have spoken has happened. There, you see it. God, you see it. You're talking to him as if he's like right next to him. Isn't he? Very familiar with him. And you have said to me, O Lord God, buy the field for money and take witnesses. Yet the city has been given into the hand of the Chaldeans. He sees the irony 
uh, his, his piety and his faith in God doesn't stop him seeing how ridiculous it seems to everybody else. <laughs> then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Let's see how, what God says. How, how does God reply to this prayer? Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will give this city into the hand of the Chaldeans, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall take it. And the Chaldeans who fight against this city shall come and set fire to this city and burn it with the houses on those on whose roof they have offered incense to Baal and poured out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. This is the whore of Israel being described here. Because the children of Israel and the children of Judah have done only evil before me from their youth. For the children of Israel have provoked me only to anger with the work of their hands, says the Lord. For this city has been to me a provocation of my anger and my fury from the day that they built it, even to this day. So I will will remove it from before my face. Because of all the evil of the children of Israel and the children of Judah, which they have done to provoke me to anger, they, their kings, their princes, their priests, their prophets... They're the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem. You know, I get I get mad at false preachers. I do. I'm sure Jeremiah got mad at false prophets. But you have to put up with them and you have to be faithful. Do you see? But it's always been the same picture, basically. They have turned to me the back and not the face, though I taught them, rising up early and teaching them, yet they have not listened to receive instruction. But they set their abominations in the house which is is called by my name to defile it, uh, idolatry. They built the high places of Baal, which are in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to cause their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire to Molech. They were sacrificing children which I did not command them, nor did it come into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. Now, therefore, now this, is, this is pretty wicked, isn't it? Behold, uh, now therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city of which you say, it shall be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon by the sword, by the famine, and by the pestilence. Behold, I will gather them out of all the countries where I have driven them in my anger, in my fury, in my great wrath. I will bring them back to this place and I will cause them to dwell safely. That's God. They shall be my people and I will be their God. That's covenant language. He remembers his covenants. That's why the covenants are there. God remembers them. So why don't we? Why do we write books of theology, teach classes in our seminaries and in our churches which don't mention the covenants and which don't take them seriously and that contradict what the covenants say? What's our problem? No, it's not the enemy, brother. It's not the enemy. That's not 
blame the devil for it. He, yeah, the problem's us. The problem is we just don't like being told. We like this too much. We like to reason it out our own selves. And remember at the beginning of the course last time, I put a lot of emphasis on the fact that um, we're supposed to be, the reason is supposed to be under the Word of God, not over the Word of God, but we put it over the Word of God and say, it doesn't mean that, it really means this. And then we give our argument. That's our problem. That's why we don't pay attention. That's why God makes covenants. Because we have a tendency not to pay attention. Yes? Yes, he mentioned the remnant uh, earlier on. Well, the covenants, the covenants that he's speaking about, and I, I will refer back to these if you give me a bit of a little bit more time. And I've got half an hour. Um, but these covenants are the Davidic, the priestly covenant, and the Abrahamic, mixed in with the Noahic, and now with this covenant too. Israel, and the, the the final remnant of Israel, and all the saved of Israel, yeah, all the righteous ones of Israel through the the ages. Okay, I'm gonna I'm speeding up here. Then I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for the good of them and their children after them. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, so they'll be wise. Um, I constantly pray, Lord, help me to fear you. You know, help me to fear you. And and uh, maybe he's going easy on me because I don't fear him like I know I should. But I need to fear him. Uh, I mean, that's where safety is, notice. That's where, they're where you're content, you know. God's not into the, the modern way of parenting, you know, where you just let the kid do anything he wants, follow his own heart, you know, and don't give him any boundaries. <clears throat> and I will make an everlasting covenant with them that that I will not turn away from doing them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts so that they will not depart from me. You see, in order to, in order for God to do good to us, there has to be that right and proper proportional relationship between God as God and man as man. <laughs> yes, I will rejoice over them to do them good. And I will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. See the language? Why do people say that God is through with Israel? Why do they say that that the language is just a type? What's wrong with them? You know... In the next chapter, you're going to see me get pretty excited. I know that's not usual, okay? But this this very calm and collected and dispassionate person in front of you is is going to get a little bit aerated in the next chapter, okay? And you're going to see why. You mean the 
person who has no opinion about cell phone <laughs> That very same person. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That guy. Yeah. All right. So let's move on to chapter 33. There's more stuff, you know, dead bodies and all kinds of stuff going on at the beginning of chapter three, uh, 33. Um, but we're going to skip to verse 14 and read down to verse 26. This is where we're going to stop today. But this, 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 if I can say something about this passage. Fourteen to twenty-one, twenty-six. Um, if you want to interpret the Bible correctly, I would say this is your anchor point right here. Anchor point. Um, this is the place that you have to come to, read, get every word, and then decide what you're going to do with it. Okay? This is the place. Uh, for those godly, scholarly, Brethren who disagree with everything basically I say, um, because they have a different view, they believe that the church is the new Israel and um, there's no return of Israel to the land and no um, literal king and literal temple and all that's gone, you know. They generally say there's no literal antichrist either and uh, at least not the future person and... Um, they often say we're in the tribulation now as well as we're in the kingdom now. There's no literal millennium. Those people, and they are good and they are scholarly. Okay? And many of them more godly than I am. And certainly many of them more scholarly than I am. And yet, that's the touch point. That's what they need to deal with and they never do. As somebody who reads their writings, from cover to cover, and looks for this, and looks for lots of other stuff, but I look for this. They never deal with this passage. And there's, here's the reason why. Let's read it. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will perform that good thing that I have promised to the house of Ju- Israel and to the house of Judah. Promised to perform something, and it's a good thing. In those days and at that time I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness. What covenant's that? Davidic. But notice the branch there. We've seen the branch in Isaiah. So what is this? This is messianic prophecy that we have here. Okay, He, he shall execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. Just like in uh, chapter 11 of Isaiah. In those days... Judah will be saved. And Jerusalem will, there's the code again, dwell safely. And this is the name by which she will be called, the Lord our righteousness. Uh, last time we did chapter 23, remember? And verses 
5 and 6, where this person, a king, will reign. It's basically the same stuff, but it's his name will be called the Lord our righteousness. Now, it's Jerusalem that will be called the Lord our righteousness. Do you see? Definitely not called that now. For thus says the Lord, as question time as we go through this, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. Which covenant? Okay. That, by the way, is a quotation. Nor shall the priests, the Levites, lack a man, a man, to offer burnt offerings before me, to kindle grain offerings, and to sacrifice continually. What do you mean? The Babylonians are coming. They're going to destroy the temple. What are you talking about? What covenant's this? The priestly covenant. Exactly. And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, Thus says the Lord, If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that there will, be, will not be day and night in their season. What covenant is that? No, or, uh, cre- no, it's not creation. There isn't a creation covenant. Oh, right. Sorry for being adamant there, but I did tell you I was going to get carried away a bit. It's the Noahic covenant. Okay, quickly, Gen- uh, Genesis 8.22. Mike, can you read that for us since you got it all wrong there? Uh, Genesis 8.22. Just read that for us. I'm only kidding here. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, yes? Springtime and summer. Springtime and winter, and talk basically the seasons. Okay? Day and night. What covenant is this? The Noahic. Do you see? Alright. We knew that. Good. I know, I know, because I'm, I'm actually, I have no grace at all, do I? I can pick on you and just make you feel, yeah, I'm sorry about that. It's just my sense of humor. It's not anything but that. Um, then and then, well, if you can if you can change that one, that's a Noahic covenant, guys. That's the uniformity of nature. Then my covenant may also be broken with David, my servant, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne, not the throne in heaven, his throne. And with the Levites, the priests, my ministers. As the host of heaven cannot be numbered, nor the sand of the sea measured. Which covenant's that? Abrahamic. Very good, Robert. So will I multiply the descendants of David, my servant, and the Levites who minister to me. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, and just stop there, and uh, Psalm 115 verse 12 says this. The Lord has been mindful of us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, Have you not considered what these people have spoken, saying, The two families which the Lord has chosen, he has also cast them off. Well, the two families are either 
Israel and Judah, or David and Levi. Make your choice. It doesn't matter really. It amounts to the same thing. It amounts to somebody saying, you know, that, you know, the two families that he's chosen, he's cast them off. He's cast off Israel. This is what, this is replacement theology put into the mouths of people in Jeremiah's time. You would think people in the church age would actually figure this out, wouldn't you? Let's, let's see what, what the response is. Thus they have despised my people, as if they should no more be a nation before them. So what you do with modern covenant, uh, not, yeah, it is covenant theology, what you do with most uh, replacement theology today is that you say we're not replacement theologians. That's not right. That's a nasty word. You shouldn't say that. We believe all Israel will be saved. We believe that there will be a great ingathering of the people of Israel. And do you believe they'll be returned to their land and David will be their king and and uh, in Israel? And do you believe that the, the priests will be... Oh, no, we don't believe that stuff. We believe that they'll be saved and come into the church, which is the new Israel. Well, why am to the old Israel? And it's a problem. They've been... What's the word? Replaced! <laughs> by the new Israel. Because, and it is replaced because most of the new Israel are Gentiles, not Jews. So why don't we just speak plainly and say replaced? Some of them still do. A lot of them say transformed, expanded. Okay? You've got to watch these guys, okay? We're in the 21st century now. Uh, we use words, you know, politically and we don't mean what, what we say. So, this is a word against replacement theology. Thus says the Lord, verse 25, if my covenant is not with day and night, that's Noahic, and if I have not appointed the ordinances of heaven and earth, that's creation, it's not a covenant, it's an ordinance, then I will cast away the descendants of Jacob and David, my servants, so that I will not take away any, uh, sorry, yeah, I will not take any of his descendants to be rulers over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I've always told you to watch out for that trivium. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Gentiles share in the blessings of Abrahamic covenant, and therefore Abraham is their spiritual father because of Genesis 12.3. But before Genesis 12.3 comes Genesis 12.1 and 2. And that those verses don't have anything to do with the nations. They have to do with Abraham's literal seed, his descendants. Isaac and Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, when you see that, that's talking about that covenant to Israel. Do you see? For I will cause their captives to return and will have mercy on them. Well, we know that because we've been reading about it all through this lesson. Um, what do you make of this? 
How many covenants have, covenants have we got here? Have you been counting? How many covenants? Well, we've got the Noahic. Notice that. Noahic. There isn't a creation covenant. That's an ordinance. Abrahamic, that's right. That's good. Davidic. And priestly, good, because the priests are certainly in there, aren't they? Yeah, David's in there. But we see something else. Mosaic's not there. Why is the mosaic not there? What is there which you haven't mentioned? No. The new covenant. The new covenant. In those days Judah will be saved. The new covenant is a covenant of salvation. It's a covenant of transformation of the soul. Putting the the law of God, which was external in the Moses covenant, into the heart, which is the new covenant. So the new covenant is here, is a covenant of salvation. And as we will see, as we move forward, that um, the new covenant is the reason why God must deliver on these covenants. He must. The word must means must. He must deliver. He must give the land to whom he promises. He must give the throne to whom he promised it to. He must give the priesthood to whom he promised it to. He must. It's not an option for God. God being God, just because he's God, doesn't mean he can do anything he he wants. He's not Allah. He's not capricious. He cannot deny himself. And he is his word. You know, the old saying, a person's as good as his word, God's only as good as his word as well. And once God has saved people and cleansed them, once Israel is the virgin again, what's to stop the virgin of Israel claiming the promises that were covenanted to Israel by God? Nothing. And what's to stop God delivering? Nothing. So what are we waiting for? The branch of righteousness. Do you see that? That's who we're waiting for. And if your eschatology doesn't meet with this, change it, I humbly suggest and dispassionately recommend, change it because you're wrong. How do I know you're wrong? Yeah, not because I say it. Not because I prefer it. Not because I've got it all figured out. It's because the same reason that Jeremiah knew it was the word of the Lord. Because God means what he says. That's why. Do you see? God means what he says. That's what I've been telling you since I started the first class here. 
yeah, but yeah, I don't mean it as a just a truism. I, you know, I could be in front of a bunch of replacement theologians who call themselves proudly replacement theologians and say that, and they will say, yeah, I know, I believe that. Just as they say, this is biblical. And then someone who disagrees with them says, yeah, but this is biblical. Okay? It doesn't mean anything. It only means something once you understand what is being said. Do you see? So, uh, we have to stop there. Any questions? What we're going to do next week, I want you to reread chapters 34 and 35. And then I want you to read Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 49. So write those things down. Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 49. Yes. Not through. No. So men just think they're smarter than God. No, well, I'm not accusing them of having, um, you know, bad motives. I'm accusing them of having a bad methodology. What we're doing here is that we are we are moving through the Bible in a kind of a chronological sense, and we're accruing information. When you're asking something that doesn't fit into the picture, I tell you to wait. We're accruing information. We're, we're building a picture. Do you see? And the picture is coming more and more into focus. Yes? Um, we've got quite a bit to go yet. But next week, um, we hit a passage which is a central passage to the way that I approach the Bible. This is, um, this passage is fundamental, I think, to our understanding of Scripture. If you cannot face this passage, you know, square on and come away without sounding apologetic or, you know, bringing excuses in or saying what the New Testament says. Um, If you can't face this passage square on, then you've got the wrong eschatology. You've got the wrong understanding. This is God himself saying, he's challenging us. He's saying, "If, if you can change this stuff, I will change my covenants, my oaths. But since, what's the, what's he doing here? Yeah. It's a rhetorical device. He's saying, I ain't going to change it. I'm not going to change my oath. That means we can believe it, we can absolutely anchor it anchor onto it, we can interpret the Bible through it, and anything that contradicts it must be wrong. And we better go back to the drawing board and think again. Just dismiss it. Like building on this foundation. Right.
Okay, let's. Uh, It'll stand. The question I had earlier. Yes, the, Robert. The Holy Spirit. You know, we have the benefit of. You're saying we don't do so well. The poor people before the cross, Pentecost. What those, those poor people? They, they were really having a hard time to keep them. Yeah, the they did not. Uh, I mean, I mean, to make that much difference, I mean, we must be doing better. No, I no. There are the opportunities. The opportunities are better. The light offered is better, but it is a that's a, a difficult thing. Certainly, there is no evidence in any Old Testament passage or New Testament passage either that Old Testament saints were indwelt by the Holy Spirit permanently or savingly. He only rested on for a short time for specific purposes like uh, Bezalel for making the fabric and the candlestick and stuff like that for the tabernacle. Uh, yeah. Yeah, Saul and uh, the bloke with the long hair. And, uh, you know, those people, yes? The Spirit rested on them and left them. But never saved them. Never connected them to Christ. Why, why couldn't he do that? Because Christ hadn't come and died, that's why. Do you see? 